Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. So we do have the best Twitter followers and listeners in the world. So shout out to Kristen Rev, who, and she's going to name this week's edition the "I Love a Parade" edition. I love a parade. I love a, a parade with a lot of hardware. If you were having a military parade, what would your hardware of choice be? Well, you know what the answer is <laughs> in my case. I mean, stupid question. How many cannons would be in your military parade, Ben? So many cannons. So Wait, would they be miniature cannons? cannons or would well, they be full size? So I think you could imagine like the doll size parade, which would be the parade of the baby cannons. Uh, or you could imagine the full size military parade, which would look really odd with, with baby cannons. Like ten thousand baby cannons marching. Well, it would be like it would be like that scene in Spinal Tap where the the Stonehenge comes down, but it's eighteen inches instead of eighteen feet. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! I definitely look forward to this parade. I think I would want a skiff yeah, in my military parade, rolling down your military parade. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No one would know what it was. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to see in. People inside couldn't see out. They'd just be doing their business. And, yeah, you know. perfectly secure. As long as there's lots of uniforms, I'm fine. <laughs> and glitter. Can we have glitter? Glitter. Lots of men <laughs> with glitter in uniforms. All about it. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the I Love a Parade edition. I'm Shane Harris, parading reporter. I'm parading all about town. That's excellent. That's I've, what I do. You've been parading out of town. I have been parading out of town. <laughs> Maybe that'll be the subject of a future podcast. Stay tuned. <laughs> oh, One day, see. maybe I can tell that story. That would be a lot of fun. Uh, I'm here in the Jungle Studio with my good friends Ben Wittes and Tamara Kaufman Wittes. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi, Shane. And we are joined by a very special guest this week. Here in the studio with us is Jung Pak, who is a senior fellow and the Korea chair at Brookings. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. You are the resident Korea expert and are going to decode... All things Kim Jong-un, Olympics, nuclear weapons, going to make sense of all of it. Yes. And parades. Yes. All in the next uh, hour. <laughs> <laughs> it's a simple matter, really. Yeah. <laughs> you pitiful people, you just don't understand. It's all so simple. <laughs> We're going to clear it all right up. Um, this week on the podcast, is the intelligence oversight process as we know it dead? Yes. Yes. Okay. Next Skipping time. right along to that. Uh, Jung is going to walk through, what come, talk to us as we delve into the education of Kim Jong-un uh, from a terrific piece that she has uh, just now up. And FBI um, emails, emails? Emails. They're called emails. emails. FBI emails show that the White House misled the public about the reaction to Jim Comey's firing. File I, under, call me shocked. Yeah, I think they're, they're kind of like FBI holy shit emails. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to talk about how a little blog called Lawfare obtained them. It's a little tool called the Freedom of Information Act. It's a study in transparency. We're excited about it. Yeah, we're very excited. It's part of the oversight process. It sure is. Well, See, it's it all ties together. instead of the oversight process. <laughs> Since the oversight process is dead, <laughs> let's talk yeah, about Ben we have, we have these other little tools. <laughs> Uh, let's start with talking about that that intelligence oversight process. So um, we're we're not going to rehash too much. I think the the Nunes memo and release the memo, which we talked about last week. I will simply flag that it's kind of like Groundhog Day because the Democrats' memo is now uh, anticipated to either come out Friday or not, maybe with some redactions. But we're still kind of in memo gate a little bit. But it's raised this really, I think, important question of whether or not. There can be meaningful oversight of the intelligence agencies uh, in the wake of this. And what, I, what I'm getting at, and Ben, maybe I'll kick to you with this first, is you know, fundamentally the compact of oversight as it exists since the 1970s when the intelligence oversight committees were set up is the executive branch provides access to the most secretive, most classified and important information that there is to conduct oversight. And those legislative bodies do not leak it. They also do not use it for 
political purposes. Now, we can argue about moments where they are, they clearly probably have done that. But it seemed like this was a fairly extraordinary breach of that compact insofar as Chairman Nunes on the House Intelligence Committee was aiming to put out information such as confirming that there was a FISA uh, in existence on Carter Page, um, pointing to classified materials underlying the memo that he wrote, uh, and did this release in the face of opposition from the FBI and the Justice Department to very important executive branch agencies that provided this information to the committee, clearly, you know, under the presumption that it would not be used in this way as part of that compact. So, I mean, do we have a meaningful oversight process going forward? Well, not in the House. Um, and, you know, I think it's important at this stage to disaggregate the Senate process from the House process, because the Senate process in a bipartisan way has been serious and uh, restrained and careful, and it hasn't leaked, and it hasn't, none of the things that I'm about to describe uh, have much to do with what's going on in the Senate. Um, But the House process, uh, it seems to me, has broken down entirely, and it's broken down so completely that it's a little bit hard to understand how and what sort of inspired leadership it would take to put it back together again. Um, I think you're actually understating the magnitude of what Nunes did here. So uh, the components of the process, you've identified uh, a number of them, but there are a few others. It's number one, not just that information won't leak, but that intelligence sources and methods will be protected, right? In this instance, nothing leaked. Uh, There was an affirmative decision by the institution of the committee to blow an intelligence source and to reveal FISA targeting and source information. That's an extraordinary thing. Why would you, if you're the FBI or the National Security Agency, why would you share FISA source and, and targeting information with that committee again? Well, uh, hang on, though. I mean, a lot of, not the exact specifics, but a lot of the information contained in the Nunes memo had already been reported in the press. The name Chris Steele, the existence, the, the text of the dossier, all of this was already in the public domain. So I agree that the use of it to produce a document with such a strong partisan agenda was egregious. And the formal fact of disclosing that information was egregious, because even though classified information gets into the public domain, it doesn't get confirmed, you know, as accurate. But I'm just not confident that there was that that the substance of the breach was that egregious. Okay, so first of all, there is a huge difference between press reporting that somebody is an intelligence source and the House Intelligence Committee confirming publicly this was an in, this person was an intelligence source let's now subject him to ridicule and by the way here's how his intelligence was used that's a that's a very different uh, animal and um, secondly um, not only did they reveal that they revealed the names of the officials who signed FISA applications. They revealed the dates on which FISA applications were approved. And they revealed enough information about what was in that FISA application that you, if you were, say, an adversary foreign intelligence service, could make some pretty interesting inferences about what does and doesn't constitute probable cause for purposes of FISA. I learned an enormous amount, not about the truth from that document. I have no idea what the truth was, and I don't believe a lot of things that were in that document. But I did learn a lot about mechanical stuff from it. And I'm, you know, not an adversary foreign intelligence agency. Uh, The most important thing that's in that document is the fact that the House Intelligence Committee was willing to release it. And that is something that will be heard loud and clear across, you know, 17 different intelligence agencies, four or five of whom 
engage actively in the FISA process to one degree or another. And I uh, don't know how that relationship recovers from that, which is not to say it can't, but I think it's a really substantial betrayal of the premise of that relationship, which, by the way, the president of the United States himself was a party to. Right, which I I think doesn't surprise anyone, but also I think complicates the narrative that it that the fundamental failure here was a failure of the legislative overseers. I guess without disagreeing with your point, I guess my perspective is that it's not this act itself, the decision by the House Intelligence Committee and a vote along party lines to release this document, which, as you know, required the president's declassification to do. Um, That, in a way, is a manifestation of the breakdown, the breakdown in confidence and trust, the politicization of the oversight role preceded this. And we saw that in Nunes's behavior in the whole unmasking controversy. Um, We've seen that in the way the Intelligence Committee has conducted or perhaps not conducted its oversight of the um, set of issues surrounding Russian interference in the elections over the last year. And this is just, in a way, a culmination and probably not the end of that process of politicization in the House. And, you know, what's the, the, the break on that is meant to be the House leadership, right, that these committee chairs um, operate and and the majority on the committee operate under um, some constraints from a leadership that has a vision beyond the momentary political advantage and understands the value of the oversight process and has some broader sense of the national security interests here. And that, to me, is another failure to point to, was the willingness of Paul Ryan not just to go along with all of this, but to support a highly politicized set of engagements by the House committee with the FBI and the Justice Department demanding documents that they really shouldn't have been demanding and he shouldn't have backed them up on it. Um, And then not just going along with this um, memo drafting and release, but actively agitating for it. John, can I ask you, because before you joined Brookings, you were a CIA analyst and you write about this in your your excellent piece. Um, As somebody who's worked in the community and I, I presume worked with highly sensitive information, which you may or may not have assumed was going to committees. I mean, how do you respond to what we've seen, both in terms of the the, the making public of things that we long thought would never be made public, but also the the clear just political conflict that is going on in the release of this information about this FISA warrant? You know, all I have to say in watching this from the outside um, is that I don't know, you know, there's the whole talk about deep state and there are people who are actively working against the government. But in my experience in the in at CIA and in the intel community, it's all just these are people who just show up every morning, stay late and work on the mission. And they try to brush off the political things. Um, So. In my nine years there, you know, I've seen nothing but professionalism, and and I'm really proud of that um, of my colleagues and my former colleagues, and um, you know, I would I would suspect that a lot of this is is um, starting to um, degrade morale. I would mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. Um, it must be pretty demoralizing. Yeah. So look, I mean. There's always a tension between the executive and legislative branches in terms of information sharing. The executive branch always wants to hold back, and the legislative branch always wants to learn more. I would imagine that in the case of classified information, that tension is even stronger because the executive, their inclination is not just to hold back for proprietary or institutional reasons, but um, you know, for the fewer people know a piece of protected information, the more secure it is. Right. Right. And so in that sense, like the premise of this oversight it is trust. And if trust is broken, then, you know, would we, should we expect that actors in the intelligence community are going to withhold more or hedge more in what they share with Congress? And I wonder, too, like, how much of this is conditioned on personalities? I mean, so Devin Nunes is the chairman of the committee. 
he's making these decisions. He's driving this train in effect. I was struck by the fact that Trey Gowdy, uh, who has been highly critical <laughs> of the executive branch in the past, really distanced himself uh, in comments over the last weekend. Uh, not, not to say he was trying to undermine Nunes, but you got the clear impression that he was not entirely uh, on board with everything. Yeah, that was Mr. Being Benghazi done. was not on board. I, mean, I have right? to say, was, I was, was, really was surprised. surprised. By you know, and then, you know, now you have news. CBS reported today that uh, apparently Chairman Nunes has decided to build a physical wall, a partition, yeah, in and, the, and Mexico's going to pay for it. Right? <laughs> In the hipsy offices separating the Democratic and Republican staffs from each other. And when Republican members were asked for comment, some of them said essentially they were surprised to hear this and I had nothing to do with this decision. So if Devin Nunes were no longer the chair, would that, do you guys think, go? Would that, would that sort of start to set things back to some kind of baseline where maybe they were before we had these extraordinary uh, public disclosures? So look, there have been bad times on intelligence committees before. Uh, The period uh, before Chairman Rogers became uh, chairman of the committee was an ugly period. And when Rogers became chairman, he and uh, uh, Ruppelsberger, the the ranking member, kind of made a blood pact that they were going to do everything together. And, you know, people have their complaints about Mike Rogers. But, you know, I really think he did a remarkable job in making that committee function in a bipartisan fashion again. And similarly, you know, it's hardly a secret that Dianne Feinstein and uh, and uh, ranking member Chambliss had, uh, and Bond, had very serious divisions over the CIA's, the investigation of the CIA's uh, coercive interrogation program that went on for a long time and that the Democrats really wanted a very aggressive investigation of that, you know, had a lot of criticisms and the CIA was upset and the Republicans were, you know, stopped participating in the investigation. And so the idea that there are, you know, partisan divisions in these uh, committees that have to be bridged sometimes is not new. Um, we've never seen anything like Devin. We need to talk about Devin. And, um, you know, that's... That hashtag will never get old for you. That's, (laughs) that's, you know, it's a new thing. And one of the things that I think is going to be difficult to bridge about the breach he has opened is that his party backed him. You know, and his party backed him on the committee by voting for the release of this memo. Uh, And his party backed him institutionally, as Tamara said, when Ryan did not rein him in and when Trump uh, embraced it. And so I think you have a problem here that's a little bit deeper than Devin Nunes. It's the, it, the institutional support that Devin Nunes got from his party. And I don't know how you fix that. And I, I don't know how you fix that if you're Adam Schiff and you become chairman because there's a change in control of of Congress next this year, and I don't know how you change it if you're the Republican who has to succeed Nunes as chairman because the Republicans uh, retain control. You know, I think that's a an interesting point to end on. And and when we talk later about uh, the FBI, I I want to come back around to because it seems to me that there's an asymmetry in the political argumentation here that actually puts. Uh, defenders of the intelligence community and its modes of operation um, in a really disadvantageous position and almost forces them to politicize their arguments unavoidably because of the nature of the critique that's coming from Republicans. But we can come back to it. Um, Let's move on to our second. Speaking of people in control, that was a terrible segue. (laughs) I got, I got of, nothing. Speaking of parades. Segment. Speaking of parades, sure. Let's throw that back. <laughs> um, Jung has this terrific, really, uh, essay article. I mean, it's more than an essay. I mean, it reads it, is, it reads like a magazine article to me um, about uh, Kim Jong-un and much about his upbringing, his education, and parts that I found most fascinating just what an extremely hard subject this is for CIA analysts like yourself to to wrestle with, um, given both the opacity of the regime and what precious little is known 
about Kim's own upbringing. And this is a few sources we have. As a journalist, I really appreciated. I just want to read one passage that I thought was great from the story. It says, North Korea is what we at the CIA call the hardest of the hard targets. A former CIA analyst once said that trying to understand North Korea is like working on a jigsaw puzzle when you have a mere handful of pieces and your opponent is purposely throwing pieces from other puzzles into the box. Um, Which, as a reporter, that sounds like my nightmare. (laughs) Um, So you make this really compelling point. I wonder if we could maybe just start with this, that there is – in particularly in, the, I guess, the American press and in American politics, there is this, some of this caricature of Kim Jong-un as, you use the phrase, the 10-foot baby, right? Which is that he is somehow this in, an undisciplined, immature figure who at the same time, you know, looms huge on the world stage and has nuclear weapons and, is, and could be uh, massively destructive and unwieldy at the same time. But you kind of argue that this is both underestimating and overestimating him. And I like, I just love the idea of, of course, that we're just getting him all wrong in our caricature. So maybe start with this idea of him as the 10 foot baby and, and why that is possibly useful, but maybe really not a useful way to look at him. So I don't know if it's true of other leaders when, when we talk about other leaders, but I feel like we spend an inordinate amount of time talking about whether he's rational, whether Kim Jong-un is rational. Right. And, um, you know, you know whether it's, you know, roundtable discussion or a conference or a private workshop or whatever, or, some, you know, talking to people who are brand new to this issue, there's so much time, I spend so much time trying to convince people that he's rational. Um, and I think the, the, the idea that he's irrational and that he, or that there's some doubt about his rationality stems from these overlapping misperceptions about him. So when you think of him as this irrational baby character, um, you know, his tanks are his toys, his missiles are his toys. Um, babies don't, don't think logically. Um, they don't understand the, um, how their actions produce reaction, um, and they're, if they're left alone, they're liable to hurt themselves and other people, mm. um, whether by mistake or not. Um, so there's that perception, but then there's a the 10-foot-tall baby concept, which I think makes, you know, when you talk about just the missiles um, and just the sheer um, advan- the advancements and how quickly they arrive, how North Korea arrived at these advancements, um, you know, there's this tendency to see North Korea as this omnipotent figure that is just going to destroy everything like King Kong, right? Um, but, you know, I think those two per- misperceptions tend to excuse the discussion about Kim, his, his intentions, um, and therefore it you know, it affects how the policy responses are formulated. So if you if you fundamentally believe that he's irrational and that he's this baby who's going to hurt you um, by mistake or not, that you're going to have a different policy response than if you think he's a rational leader right. working off of fundamentally rational assumptions. And I was felt sense so compelling, too, that, that he was groomed for this position, as we understand it, from an early age and seems to grasp that, right? So, I mean, it, it's if we're thinking you, it, that it seems to me like what a, you know, the basis for actually a quite rational person. If you believe that you were coming into this position and it's been this responsibility right. has been given to you, you have yeah. a lot of, yeah, exactly. He has, seems to me like that's somebody who would have a tremendous amount of agency. Right. And I wanted to point out the differences in this essay, the differences between uh, Kim Jong-un, so Kim 3.0, from Kim 1.0 and Kim 2.0. Um, so while um, his grandfather, who was the country founder, Kim Il-sung, and Kim Jong-il, um, they they actually had to deal with real issues. They had to deal with, you know, shifting geopolitics. They had to deal with the end of Soviet aid with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, You know, Kim Il-sung had to fight and kill Japanese and, you know, fight in the the Russian uh, hinterland, right? So, um, but at the same, in in the meanwhile, um, Kim Jong-un, Kim 3.0, swam in the French Riviera, drove a Mercedes when he was seven, um, so those types of things have that, that's to... That's hard, though. That's... It was specially modified, so he could drive it. <laughs> Which is awesome. Like, right. that, just, that is kind of awesome. That really does kind of up the ante for every billionaire exactly. Christmas present exactly. to their grandchild. Right. right. So what happens if you live, you grow up and live in that cocoon of privilege? Um, how does that affect your sensibilities about, about what you're able to do? Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So when you think of it in that context... 
yeah, I can build missiles and say that they're they're aimed at the U.S. and get away with it, right? So because who's going to, in North Korea, say, oh, no, you shouldn't do that? Yeah. You know, that's a really interesting point about growing up in privilege and how it affects your outlook. Because I think the other question is, does it make you more risk-averse um, than your grandfather who survived, you know, these very, very difficult circumstances, obviously had a sense of self-confidence that came out of that, but also kind of understood the contrast between where he started his life and where he ended it, whereas Kim Jong-un has grown up with a lot to lose in a way. Does maybe, do you think that that might make him more risk Yeah, so I think there is that, there's that sense that he has a lot to lose. I mean, he, you know, he's in it for the long haul, in my view. I mean, he's, he's 34. Um, he could rule for another 30, 40, 50 years if he cuts out the smoking and the drinking and the partying, right? <laughs> but fun with that. Period. But, um, right. <laughs> um, he could but, just go to parades. Yeah. But I think he's more yeah. risk tolerant um, as a result of having, probably having grown up with people um, you know, putting the sponge, you know, the foam tape around the edges of sharp uh-huh. tables, right? So he hasn't um, faced the consequences of bad choices, right? Right. Mm. Interesting. Um, so I think he's he's more uh, of that side of the risk spectrum than on the other side of not wanting to lose things. Yeah. Um, because I don't know what he's lost so far. So I wanted to ask you about one of the things that um, seems to be debated a lot within the administration, which is about not whether he's rational, but whether he's deterrable, whether North Korea is deterrable. And, you know, this debate about how to understand uh, a rogue adversary, I remember a lot of similar conversations about Saddam Hussein um, in the 19, well, in the run up to the Gulf War and then throughout the 1990s. Um, and ultimately, it wasn't that Saddam was a madman. Uh, it was that his rationality, you know, his, va- his values, his preferences were different than we might imagine them to be if we put ourselves in his shoes, right? So it's not rational, irrational. It's the mirror imaging that gets us into trouble when we try to anticipate someone else's behavior. Um, So I guess, you know, let's assume for a moment that Kim Jong-un is rational in his own way, in Mm -hmm. his own framework, with his own interests. What does that tell us about whether he's deterrable? The thing about deterrence, I think, is that you can't see it, Mm. right? Um, When I talk to people about, you know, know, some people who are very, you know, feel very down about all of this say why do we keep losing why do we you know why has he done all these things like why does he keep testing right why uh does he keep testing why is the regime still exist why do they keep poking and prodding and doing these cyber attacks and 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 the the nerve the chemical nerve agent attack why is he doing these things so actions are you can see actions um but when when you work at the cia and you're glad that something didn't happen you're like oh great Awesome. That's a win, right? And I think with deterrence, you can't see deterrence. Um, so it's hard to to start, you know, on the scorecard. Where have I done really well today, right? And for uh, you know, I would I would make the argument that Kim has been deterred. You know, there hasn't been a major attack on South Korea since 2010 when they sank the warship and and fired at those islands, killing 50 people in total. So since then, I think the fact that, you know, the U.S. and the South Koreans have been um, really in lockstep on a lot of these on the peninsular issues and with U.S. extended deterrence, um, that's prevented him from doing more crazy shit. So I think, and I think that's true. And and, and, uh-huh. and it's hard to. So it depends, like where you set your threshold. What exactly. are we trying to deter? Like, right. fine, let him test mus- missiles as long as he doesn't kill a whole lot of people. Well, that's our you know, bar. It, you know, I I would make the argument that you know we have been deterring Kim, and um, that he is deterrable. Ben. So let me follow up on that. When you say he's deterrable, he's presumably deterrable from some things but not others. He doesn't seem deterrable from missile development or from building as big a nuclear arsenal as he can as quickly as he can. How do you understand what his strategic objective is there and what he's trying to accomplish with these very belligerent threats that, you know, 
particularly when his counterpart is somebody who himself is can be quite undisciplined, raises always the possibility of, of a sort of, you know, hair trigger misunderstanding uh, leading to some kind of, uh, you know, unintended yeah. war that nobody wants. I think part of the reason that we saw so much activity last year is because he wanted to show who was boss in the neighborhood. So President Trump came in in January. Um, President Moon of South Korea came in in May. And Kim had been there for six years, you know, and he was trying to show them or lay out the the way that the relationship was going to work. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it was in part a way of his, um, I don't know, staking his ground. Mm -hmm. um, and this is where I'm setting the bar in terms of how we're going to engage with each other or not. Um, so what is he trying to get? I think that's still an open question, um, right? So I think when his grandfather started developing the nuclear weapons program, it was to deter another Korean war. Um, and it was to make sure that they ma they remained independent of the Soviet Union and of China and South Korea that was getting increasingly more wealthy. Um, and same with uh, Kim Jong-il in the, in the fact that it's probably more on the deep defensive spectrum. But what I worry about is given Kim Jong-un's risk tolerance, um, his growing confidence, the growing number of missiles, and the fact that he inherited this uh, this uh, advanced um, nuclear weapons program that some, you know, that he'll evolve into thinking that, yeah, why wouldn't I reunify? Mm -hmm. Right? So, and I think that's the I think that's what some people in the Trump administration are worried about is that they're that Kim already has those offensive aspirations that his appetite is growing basically because right. he feels capable because he hasn't faced a real pushback. Right. Right. Okay, so that would suggest that the uh that the best US policy goal to focus on right now is not necessarily trying to deny uh achievement of a nuclear-tipped ICBM, but rather to find some way to um, demonstrate to him that broader ambitions will fail. Yeah, right. Um, and I think that that's what maximum pressure and engagement policy does, um, using uh, sanctions to try to reorient his behavior and tell him that, no, you cannot have your cake and eat it too. Um, he wants to improve the economy. He can't do it with sanctions. Um, and he can't have nuclear weapons at the same time. So I want to throw out one one out of the out of left field question about North Korea to you before we let you go. What piece of military equipment would you want to have <laughs> at your point? No, no, no. It, it's a serious question. North Korea humor. Why? Yeah. You know, we don't. You know, we don't make jokes about the Eastern Congo. We don't make jokes about about Syria. We don't mm. make jokes about. Uh, uh, or cartoons or movies right. or right. South the, Park. You right. Know? The yeah. Supreme Leader is not funny. But there is, Iran, Iran's not really funny. There is this persistent desire. North Korea strikes me as a unique event in human history in somewhat the same way the Holocaust is a unique event. You know, it, it's a, there's, there's no, there's nothing else like it, you know, that has gone on this long um, and that the world can't do anything about or seems not to be on to do it. And I'm interested in humor as our kind of collective defense mechanism that, you know, we sort of laugh uncomfortably and make, you know, Nor Kim Jong-un looking at things, uh, websites and the interview and uh, Team America World Police. Uh, it all strikes me as quite immoral. And I'm just interested in your thoughts on sort of North Korea humor and and where it comes from and how we should understand it. Right. Um, I think that, you know, part of it is racism. Part of it, it's ethnocentrism. And part of it is North Korea itself, right? I mean, they have this over-the-top um, rhetoric against the United States, against South Korea. They... Um, the uh, the over the top you know socialist realist you know art that's and the and the monuments um, for the for the leader um, so all of that I think has gelled into this almost dehumanizing of North Korea and when we're talking about military strikes and a possible war on the Korean Peninsula I think that's a really dangerous thing to have is to have this North Korea humor which dehumanizes 
the whole, right? As um, they're less than people. Um, and one of the things that I think I think the Trump administration should be applauded for the focus on North Korea human rights. But on the other hand, the dark side is that um, the the assumption or the inference is that the regime does not um, value human life, and the people do not value their own lives. Therefore, right, and then you have Therefore, this. It's okay if they die. Exactly mm-hmm. right. Yeah. So, and that was like that in World War Two. You know, with the with the with the Japanese and the way uh, American culture dehumanized the Japanese, but not the Germans. Um, so, I think you know that's a very slippery slope, dangerous way to go, especially given the discussion about military strikes. Okay, um, Ben had a busy week. Ben I did. Had, ben had a big week. Uh, Ben was thinking when Sarah Sanders, was it Sarah Sanders? Yeah. When Sarah Sanders, and I think even Donald Trump himself, uh, after firing Jim Comey, said that they had heard from countless FBI personnel saying how glad they were that Comey was gone. They were calling to thank the president. Calling to thank him. What a great thing this was. Countless. Countless. It was, they lost count. FBI members. There were countless FBI members. They lost count. Uh, and that the FBI was in turmoil and that Comey's firing would be greeted as a much needed and uh, sought after fresh start for the FBI. So Ben decided to use the Freedom of Information Act to ask for all of the emails from FBI leadership on the day of the firing about the firing. And Ben, what did you find about the White House's description of the reaction to firing Jim Comey? Well, it turns out that all over the FBI people emailed their staffs right when they got off the phone with Sarah Huckabee Sanders to uh, inform their staffs that on their behalf, the the leadership had given their thanks to Sarah Huckabee Sanders. (laughs) And that's exactly exactly as she reported in the White House. No, I'm joking. Um, You know, turns out people weren't thrilled by what happened. They weren't calling Sarah Huckabee Sanders, and they were really upset. But I have a beef with the White House press corps on this because it has now been four days since we dumped this data uh, that showed that Sarah Huckabee Sanders was lying to the White House press corps. And there have been a number of press briefings since then, and not once has she been asked about this. And it seems to me if you are a White House reporter and you are not willing to defend the proposition that the White House press office should not be lying to you, then there's, you have, there's really no reason to have these briefings at all. So I just want to say, you know, uh, first of all, thank you to our lawyers on this. This, you know, the FOIA is a great instrument, particularly if you have a group of lawyers who are willing to go in and, and make it work for you. And we really did in this case, the folks that, uh, protect democracy, uh, Justin Florence and Larry Schwartzel. Um, but uh, boo on the White House press corps on this. I think you guys, you know, uh, you know, this was about defending the ability to ask questions in that setting and get reasonable answers. And uh, it's partly your jobs to uh, uh, to hold people's feet to the fire at that point. Well, let's talk a little bit about, too about what's in what the emails do show, which is th- this pretty um, extraordinary level of shock. I mean, people are, are literally watching TV news or seeing news bulletins flash across to find out that the director's been fired. Uh, <clears throat> emails going out from uh, people who run field offices to the staff saying, I haven't heard from headquarters. I don't know what's going on. I hope this is fake news. I hope news. this is fake news. <clears throat> and then, you know, a real emotional reaction of people writing in to say, like, how can I, you know, send a card or how can I send sentiments to the director? Um, we'll get through this. I mean, there really is, far from it being a sort of a relief, there's this, there's shock. And then there seems to be a fairly rapid period of, I mean, kind of professional mourning almost. Well, and and there's obviously a personal component to that, uh, that there was clearly a lot of confidence in Director Comey and warmth and sadness about his departure. But I, at least I, and maybe this is me interpreting, Ben, you can tell me, um, read into uh, some of those emails like, 
oh God, this is what we were afraid of. We were afraid that this presidency was not going to be respectful of our institutional independence. We were afraid that they were going to um, muck with us, and now they've started. Like, that was how I read into it, I guess. So I think there's a, f a few things going on here. So first of all, Jim Comey was an extremely controversial figure by the time of his firing outside the FBI. And, you know, in the broader political ecosystem, both among conservatives and among people who were uh, upset, mostly liberals, at the way he handled the Hillary Clinton email stuff, there's a lot of controversy about Jim Comey. And what people miss in that controversy is that within the FBI building, he was not controversial at all. He was quite universally beloved in a way that is uh, actually got a little bit lost in, in because of the external controversy. And you really see that in these emails. There's a hundred pages of them, and there is not a word of criticism. There's not a word that reflects anything but admiration and affection. This is from across the Bureau, from many different field offices, people who were not in correspondence or communication with each other. So that, I think, is one... Uh, thing that I think is really just sort of interesting about it is just just how wrong what Sarah Huckabee Sanders was saying was was. Uh, the second thing is, you know, how good the FBI's message discipline uh, from its leadership was. So, you know, this happened while while Jim was giving a speech in the Los Angeles field office. Literally, nobody in the FBI had any idea it was happening. They learned about it from television. Uh, and, Comey learned about it from television. Yeah. Well, Comey learned about it when people tapped him on the shoulder while he was giving the speech because uh, it was on CNN. Um, and they uh, – so the first few – like the first hour and a half is people saying to their staffs, I have no idea what's going on. Here's what's on television. I'll see what I can find out. And then Andy McCabe, who was then deputy director, he becomes acting director in that hour, uh, he has a conference call with all the SACs and the, the, the special agents in charge and the assistant directors, and he gives them the message that he wants the staff to get. Uh, and the message is, you know, mission continues. Please don't talk to the press. We've gone through hard times before. We'll get through this. Um, and it is amazing how disciplined the messaging from from that high cadre of, of senior leadership down to the rank and file is every single one of the messages that we saw transmits faithfully what the leadership was asking. Some of them do, some of them don't include some degree of personal reflection in there. But it is actually pretty remarkable how this hierarchy in an almost military-like way gets the word from the director or the now acting director down to the line forces and it comes down almost intact. And I was, I was joking with, you know, with Tammy about it because uh, Chris Tammy is a former State Department official. Uh, <laughs> Where the chain of command just doesn't operate quite the same way. You know, <laughs> what, what would the comparable situation have been like at State? And I, I don't think you would have seen the same kind of message discipline. More more like the Israeli military that we were talking about the other that, week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the final element is that I, I just think is actually, so, you know, Jim and I are friends, as people know. I actually don't know Andy McCabe. Um, but he comes out of this looking rather good, I think, which is to say he walks in in a crisis um, and he transmits the right message to the staff. He then gets on the phone with the president, we learn from the press, and gets berated because of his wife's political affiliations. The president asks him to ask his wife how it feels to be a loser. Um, and then four days later, he goes up to Capitol Hill and he gives testimony, and he is the one official in the United States government who told the truth. And did that knowing in the face of, you know, very direct political pressure from the president of the United States. And so I think, you know, 
And this this just, scotch is for you. And Andy's babe. just been removed from his position. And, you know, there's an inspector general investigation and all that. But I have to say, if you can read this material and the press accounts of what he did that week and not come away with a certain admiration for the person, I, I, I would be very interested in an alternative read on it. So here's my depressing coda, okay? We had last week the release of a Nunes memo that almost immediately um, was revealed to be at minimum cherry-picked, if not like deeply, deliberately distortive. And at some point, we may see a Democratic memo that tries to add context and you know correct the narrative. But by then, it's too late. We had Sarah Huckabee Sanders and the president make all these claims about turmoil in the FBI and the necessity of firing Comey. And you had a hunch right away that this was incorrect. And you now have the documents to prove it. But this is, you know, seven, eight months later. And amongst people who are open to the president's narrative, that narrative has already taken hold. And I think going back to your point about White House reporters not questioning Sarah Huckabee Sanders for lying to them, like, this is what happens over and over, is whoever gets their narrative out first wins. And the, the, the reporters who have the fact-checking beat at all the news outlets are A, exhausted, and B, have no impact. In fact, some of, them, some of these outlets don't even do fact-checking anymore in a, in a comprehensive way because there's literally no point when the president is lying every other sentence out of his mouth. If I were a White House reporter, I don't honestly know if I would waste my one question saying, hey, Sarah, you lied to us eight months ago. Um, so Pfizer, that is depressing. So wait a minute. I want to defend. I want to defend the beleaguered fact check people, and I want to defend uh, the importance of continuing to fact check. Um, so shortly after we published this piece, Faiza Patel, who's a, a, a human rights and civil liberties lawyer in in New York. Um, tweeted that it was important work, but it's kind of sad that lawfare has to spend its time uh, proving the obvious. It's one of those dumb national security choices. It's one of those dumb national security (laughs) choices that we work on these days at lawfare. Uh, And I tweeted back at her that the day we accept these lies and stop correcting them is the day that we have truly normalized. That's when people say normalize, you know, we, we don't want to normalize the presidency, uh, this, this behavior in the presidency. That's what we're talking about. You know, it's, it's the day you don't correct a lie from the White House podium because obviously it's a lie and that's what we expect from, from this group of people. And I do think that is why I find it un- almost mind-boggling that the White House press corps lets it go. Um, and I also think it is um, really admirable that Glenn Frankel's crew at the Washington Post continues to uh, document every single misstatement of fact. And I think there are upwards of 2,000 now. Um, and I think that is a good thing, if only for posterity, if only to defend the norm that the presidency is expected to tell the truth. I, and I'm not disagreeing that it is worth doing. I'm just depressed that it might have any impact on the public discussion. All right. Well, now we're going to have something uplifting. <clears throat> we're going to move on to object lessons. We have but one object lesson this week. Let's call her... A new hope. Let's call her a new hope. <laughs> her name is Jane Maureen Hennessy. Sweet baby Jane was born to none other than Susan Hennessy and her wonderful husband, Brendan, which is why Susan is not here and won't be here for a little while. Um, so, yeah, but baby Jane, uh, who's, by the way, whose birth was announced, this is one of the coolest things ever, on CNN by Wolf Blitzer. Yeah, I think actually having your birth announced by Wolf Blitzer is making it. Like, yeah, in your I think first so too. Hours. This kid was like, like not even a day old. Yeah, yeah. It's like she'll have like that antiquated YouTube said, footage before sweet, we're moved on to sweet whatever. Sweet baby. What? And she is a sweet baby. We're gonna put a picture of this baby. 
I think this may be the first baby we've ever posted to the show page, guys. Yeah, and certainly be. the f- first baby we've objectified as an object. <laughs> <laughs> she's barely 24 hours old, and she's already been objectified. <laughs> uh, but this is very good Su- news. Such is our fate. <laughs> yeah. This is very big news. We've been counting down the days along with Susan every week on the podcast. And uh, welcome, Jane Marine Hennessy, into the world. You are our sole object lesson this week. And Susan will be back, you know, after a nice rest and a period, you know. Rest. Ha ha. Ha-ha. Rest. She'll, sure. She'll, she'll be back after some time at home. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully not climbing the walls. And re- she'll be eager to get back to the podcast, I'm sure. Undoubtedly. Yeah, undoubtedly. Um, but congratulations to uh, Susan and all her growing family. And that brings us to the end of the podcast. I just want to point out that having a baby last week did not stop Susan from filing an amicus brief this week. Oh, by the, yes. <laughs> Shout out to that. Absolutely. She is, people who know Susan might say she is undeterrable. <laughs> Highly <laughs> rational. And Highly rational and undeterrable, like certain other people. Uh, rational security. Also undeterrable is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page on the webs. Somewhere. somewhere. You can follow us on Twitter at our ATL Security. You will find us on Facebook. You can download the podcast from Apple, from Stitcher, from undercast overcast through cast whatever cast it is but when you do please make sure to leave us a rating and a review it really helps other people find the podcast our audio engineer this week is quinta jurassic thank you quinta for stepping in our show is produced and edited by jen patia howell music this week by devin nunes and the 10 foot babies nice <laughs> what instruments do 10 foot babies play <laughs> they bang on things <laughs> It's totally a percussion section with (laughs) missiles. I'm not sure that Sophia Yam would be totally eager to back up that band, but if she did, it would probably be better music. I would think so. On behalf of my friends, uh, Tamar Kaufman-Wittis and Ben Wittis, and our special wonderful guest, Jung Pak, I'm Shane Harris. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. <laughs> 